Uh, thanks for reading. Good morning. Great to be with you. Uh, the one downer about the aircon is you can now see how sweaty my t-shirt is, but hopefully the aircon like cools me down really fast by the end of this thing. Uh, thank you for reading, Danny. Let's see if we can together hammer the main message home. Come on, come on, give me something. Hammer, you get it like 10 pe- All right, guys. All right, let's see. Thank you. We'll see if we can sort of bring it a little more as things go through, okay? I want to begin by thinking about uh, Anzac Day. Every year on the 25th of April, Australians commemorate Anzac Day. What is it? Well, it marks the anniversary of the day in 1915 when Australian and New Zealand troops first landed at Gallipoli in World War I. Uh, we had the first Anzac Day in, 2000, sorry, in 1916, so one year later. It has since sort of grown to become a day to commemorate all those who serve in peacetime and conflicts and wars. But really, one of the things that strikes me about World War I in particular is how many men put their hand up and volunteered to go overseas and serve. The population of Australia at that time was 4 million. Of the eligible men, so of those who could go, two out of every five put their hand up and went. Of those who went, one in seven were killed and never came home, and then three in seven came home injured. Just imagine the impact of that kind of involvement today. Look around the room. Imagine if two out of every five men put their hand up to go and fight and protect Australia from oppression. Imagine if one in seven didn't come back and three in seven came back injured. In some ways, it's a remarkable story of heroism, of self-sacrifice, of volunteerism. But what's also interesting is taking note of some of the propaganda from that time because there was no conscription. They actually tried to get it uh, on two separate occasions, once in in 1916 and again in 1917. They had plebiscites. Both times it was voted down. And so they really had to rely on the propaganda machine, you know, the media, in order to inspire, in order to motivate men to step up and volunteer. So I just want to show you some of the uh, propaganda that went around at the time. Uh, First of all, you had this one. I noticed the way that the whole thing is framed around this massive tug of war. You know, you have four, that is kind of the old German flag, so you've got four Germans pulling towards oppression, four Australians, again, that's kind of a a kind of Australian flag that they were using at the time, pulling towards freedom, and then the question, a man short, are you the man? Right, appealing to the men of Australia to step up and play their part. Uh, The conflict in today's passage will in some ways also be framed as a battle against oppression. And so, uh, just look with me from chapter 4, verse 3. We read, Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So today's battle, it's a battle of oppression and freedom. Well, look at this one. Australia has promised Britain 50,000 more men. Will you help us keep that promise? Again, uh, there's kind of a recruitment target in our passage today. uh, And the the appeal is made. Are you going to be one of those who help us keep our honour and uh, make good the promise to Britain? And so in our passage, uh, we have Deborah telling Barak, go and collect 10,000 men. So we read, so Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. There was the recruitment drive. 
Well, think about this one. Australians arise, save her from this shame. What's the shame? The shame of being the new Germany. Well, this is kind of the, the first of a number of uh, images that this really build on this idea of honour and shame. Uh, or, or take a look at these. I'll start with the one on the right. Now, there's Dad sitting with the two kids, and the question is asked, Daddy, what do you do in the Great War? Or the one on the left. Now, which picture would your father like to show his friends? Notice the way that both of the posters are appealing to the man's honour. What are your children going to say? What would you tell your friends? Well, look at this one. Whose son are you? Enlist today. Now, this one is less about your honour and more about not shaming your mother. Demonstrate by enlisting that she raised someone who knew what their duty really was. And then the last one, uh, at least for now, reading down the left side and then on the right side, women of Queensland, remember how women and children of France and Belgium were treated. Do you realise that your treatment would be worse? There's a similar dynamic in our story today. In chapter 5, after the battle is over, you have Sisera, he's the commander of the enemy, his aunt, his mum. She's kind of imagining, you know, why is my son so slow in coming home? The answer, he's dead. Uh, but this is what we're invited to entertain her thinking. It says, through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the ladder she cried out, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoils? a woman or two for each man. If you can get past the horror of Sisera's mother consoling herself with the thought of her son and his army raping women, it shows you what was at stake with the Canaanite victory. Right? The men who went out to fight were in one sense seeking to protect the women from the Canaanites and what they might do to them. And so again, that... That poster we just saw then, it says, send a man today to fight for you. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to start by showing us all of those posters is because I think it's important for us to learn to inhabit the headspace of what is going on in this passage. You see, as modern readers of this text, many of us will come to it with a bunch of questions, maybe even a bit of baggage. And so we'll read about Deborah and we'll be preoccupied with asking, okay, that's interesting. Deborah was leading Israel. What are the implications of that for our understanding of men's and women's roles in leadership? Or we might look at Jael and go, oh, she's a little deceptive. And then she smacks the guy with a tent peg. Like, that's a little bit deceptive. It's a little bit violent. What do we make of that? Now, again, they're all valid questions. They're, they're legitimate issues to think about. The thing is, what they do is run the risk of sort of sidetracking us or derailing us from really the main point of the passage, and in particular, the unique aspect that this passage is trying to teach us. You see, the mindset of people in today's story, in some ways we could see, is not all that different from the mindset of many in Australia in World War I. Right? Most people believed there was honour, in voluntarily risking your life to fight for your country and protecting others from oppression and shame. 
And what's more, while women clearly played a role in the war effort, particularly on the home front, everybody agreed that it was the men who were supposed to get up and do the fighting. Unless we can at least inhabit that mindset, we're going to miss the tension and miss, frankly, the big idea of this whole story. You see, in some ways, the lesson of Judges 4 and 5 is kind of the same as the lesson of the whole book. What's the lesson of the whole book? Frankly, God is faithful. So uh, two weeks ago, I showed you this. I won't take you through it now. It's kind of the judge's cycle. It keeps getting repeated. And it reminds us God is faithful because he keeps sending judges to deliver his people from their enemies, which they've been handed into because of their own sin. So God is faithful. God is faithful. You keep getting it time and time again. But each judge also has what we might call sort of a sub-theme, a sub-lesson, a sub-key idea. And in some ways, the only way you know what that is, is by comparing them with the others that come before and after. And so what happens when you do that with Deborah, with Barak, with Jael? Well, today I want to suggest that the big idea, the unique contribution of this story, is that God honours those who willingly stand up and answer his call to serve. That's what the passage is about. It's about the way that God honors those who willingly stand up and answer his call to serve. And so in chapter 4, you get the story. If you like, if I can put it this way, you get the Battle of Gallipoli. And then in chapter 5, you get the commemoration song. It's a bit like the Anzac Day, where uh, it's celebrated, it's commemorated, particularly the way that God has delivered them And specifically, it honours those who have willingly stepped up and played their part in the battle. And so if you're looking, you know, what's the key verse of the whole story? I would propose it's chapter 5, verse 2. It says, when the princes or the leaders in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. What's it about? It's about the leaders leading, it's about the people volunteering, and it's all to the praise of the Lord. So let's jump in. Uh, My plan for today is going to be real simple. We're just going to work through the story. We're going to have chapter 4 and chapter 5 kind of together. We'll let them interpret one another because I think you sort of need both together to really understand what's going on. And then when we finish, I want to wrap up by just helping us think through what, what does it mean to answer the call of God in our day? That's where we're going. So if you have a Bible, uh, get it open. We're jumping in. Our story starts chapter 4, verse 1. We read again, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth, Hegoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So that introduces us to at least the first four steps of that judge's cycle I showed you before. So step one, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Step two, the Lord sold them into slavery, sorry, into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. And then uh, they're oppressed, cruelly oppressed, and then finally they cry out to the Lord for help. So kind of standard. That's what you're expecting as you come to a new story in the cycle. Verse 4, though, introduces us to a bit of a twist. We read, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidith, 
was leading Israel at that time. So why is that a twist? Well, the author seems to go out of his way to make sure that we don't miss the fact that Deborah is a woman. And so uh, literally, it is Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapideth. Right, what, what's more, that word leading is actually the word judging. It, it's the same word that is used of the other male judges in the story. And so really, why is it a twist? Well, the twist in one sense is that Deborah is introduced as the first female judge. The thing is, almost as soon as she's introduced that way, a little bit of ambiguity, ambiguity is introduced. And we're wondering, well, hang on, is she the judge? Why do I say that? Because as soon as we meet her, we're then told that she sends for another guy named Barak and asks him to do the kind of thing we would expect the judges to do. And so we see this in verse 6 and 7. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. <clears throat> so who's the judge? Well, yes... Oops. Yes, uh, Deborah is described as the judge, but almost just as quickly, we're sort of led to assume that, okay, God is actually raising up Barak to do the delivering, the kind of things that we've seen judges do so far. The problem is, Barak is a wimp. And so in verse 8, we read, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. There's probably a few ways you could respond to that. Uh, some of you might be tempted to give Barak the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you say, okay, uh, that's not weakness, that's wisdom. Right? He wants the prophet of God to go with him. In some ways, yes, I, I can appreciate that. But the prophet has told him that God is going to go with him. What's more, God has guaranteed success. And so what are you doing stepping back and saying, no, I'm not going to go? Others of you might be tempted to judge him. And while that is, as we'll see in a moment, what Deborah does, pun intended, it's worth recognising that the task that is set before him in some ways is, is an intimidating task. Because he's told to go up against Sisera and his 900 chariots. Now, he also has an army as well. But chariots in those days, they're like tanks. They, they are the fighter jets of our day. And so, yeah, sure... Barak, he's got his 10,000 strong army, but he's still the inferior force. And so in some ways, with such a massive call to leadership, it's understandable that he might feel a little nervous, a little insecure. Right? I suspect you and I might have done something similar. And yet, again, Deborah's response makes it clear that Barak is in the wrong. And so just quickly, Grace City, when God calls us to act... When God calls us to step up and do something in his name, and furthermore, if he's guaranteed success, he doesn't expect us to say, well, no, I'll only do it if. No, he expects us to stand up and say, here I am, send me. So, verse 9, Deborah responds. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, 
the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, again, try and inhabit the mindset of those posters we saw before. There was honor in voluntarily risking your life to fight for your country. And what's more, everybody expected the men to step up and take the charge in that. And yet, uh, because Barak wants Deborah to hold his hand through the whole exercise, God says, I'm going to take the honor away from you and I'm going to give it to a woman. And at this point in the story, we're kind of expecting that that is going to be Deborah. But next comes the recruitment drive. And so we keep reading in verse 10. Is there, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, it's easy to miss that, right? We want to get on to the rest of the stuff, but given particularly the massive emphasis that chapter 5, right, the Anzac commemoration thing, given the emphasis that places on who made up these 10,000, it's important just to kind of pause here and reflect on it for a moment. As a leadership team, Barak and Deborah were able to raise up 10,000 men to enlist and go and fight in the war. You can just imagine the posters. Israel, we need 10,000. Will you be one of them? Women of Israel, you don't want Sisera to win. Send your man. You get a sense of just how remarkable what they've done is by reading something in the song in chapter 5. And so I'll just pull it up. You'll notice I'm splitting the NIV and the ESV. Uh, what, the ES, what the NIV does to a verse in verse 8 is a little interesting. So I'm kind of splicing two together here. But it reads, Villages in Israel would not fight. This is Deborah speaking. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. And the ESV. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Back to the NIV. But not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. Deborah says, before I came along, no one was willing to stand up and fight. In some ways, you can understand why. There wasn't even a sword or a shield among 40,000 in Israel. And yet, under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, they managed to get 10,000, one in four, it's not bad, to step up and go down and march against the tanks, the 900 chariots of Sisera and his army. No wonder it finishes with praise the Lord. So again, I, think I just want to kind of almost belabor this point because it is the key point of the story. God honors those who willingly stand up and answer his call. And so you actually see this in the rest of the song as it goes on. So, you know, think about Hyde Park in the city you walk. There's the War Memorial. And there's, there's a bunch of names of those who served in the wars. That's what we're starting to get in chapter 5. And so uh, here's a list of those who did serve, verse 13 to 14. The remnant of the nobles came down. The people of the Lord came down to me against the mighty. Some came from Ephraim. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machiah, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, sent under his command into the valley. Right, that's the list of the willing volunteers. That's kind of what you expect. What you get next is the wall of shame. Right, imagine if 
Hyde Park also had another wall of all those who didn't serve in the war. That's what you get here. And so we have in the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his caves. Coves. It's the honour and shame list. And to be honest, I kind of like the sass of it. You notice Reuben? You guys stayed back whistling with the sheep, searching your hearts. You're like, thank you. I've heard the call. We'll pray about it. Mm, We've thought about it. No, we don't think the Lord wants us to serve just this time. So much sass. And so in the end, just like Gilead, Dan, Asher, they all stay at home and don't answer the call to help. Our final contrast, kind of verse 18, verse 23. The people of Zebulun, they risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terraced fields. And then you get... Curse Meres, said the angel of the Lord, cursed its people bitterly because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. It's full on, isn't it? But again, I, I do think it just helps reinforce this big idea of what I think is going on in the whole story. It's about the honor of responding to the call of God. Right? To be courageous, step out in faith. To answer the Lord when he calls and not to stay home and twill your thumbs. And so we're going to come back at the end and explore, like, what, is it, what, what would that look like for us to answer the call of God today? But for now, I just want to keep pressing on with the story. Because despite those massive number of volunteers, the 10,000 strong army, uh, the book of Judges makes it clear who's ultimately responsible for the victory on the day. And so we read in chapter 4, Verse 14 to 15, Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And so Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. And at the end of the day, the Lord is the true deliverer. And so I, I won't take you through it now, but if you kind of do the compare and contrast of chapter 5, it seems like probably the reason that Israel were able to so effectively wipe out these 900 tanks is that God sent a storm. And that storm flooded the river Kishon. It actually swept some of the enemy away. I think that's in chapter 5, verse 21. But then maybe also it muddies the bank and so effectively makes their chariots useless. And so with one storm, God turns Sisera's strength into weakness and the Israelites wipe out the entire army. And so we're told not one of the army was left. Well, one man was left, Sisera. And so in verse 17 we read, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heba the Kenite. Now, Jael is a Kenite. That means she's not an Israelite. Now, the, the Kenites were descended from Moses' father-in-law, and so they're almost like distant cousins. And so there is kind of a bit of an indication elsewhere that the Israelites and the Kenites were maybe friends with one another, but clearly not in this case. 
right? Jael's husband, he's actually made an alliance with their enemy, the king. And this is the guy, like Sisera is leading this guy's armies. And so Sisera assumes he's on safe territory. He's come to an ally. And so he goes into the tent. Jael, she plays along with it. And so a bit like Deborah, mother's barrack, Jael begins to, if you like, mother Sisera. In verse 19, we read this. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Don't you love that? Here's a warm cup of cocoa. Let me snuggle you in, tuck you in tight. Maybe even sing you a lullaby. And before long, Sisera is fast asleep. So what does Jael do? Well, she doesn't stand guard as Sisera has told her to do. Instead, she goes, grabs a hammer, grabs a tent peg, puts it up to his temple, whack, pins his head to the ground and kills him in one glow. Now again, brutal, gruesome. And you might be tempted to, oh, how? you've got to remember, it's wartime. And again, chapter 5 not only commemorates it, it celebrates it with poetry. Uh, I hope you've got a strong stomach. Let's have a read of it. Verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell and just in case you weren't sure, dead. It's gruesome. It's poetry. It's the commemoration. More than that, it's the celebration. Why? Well, because she has killed the oppressor, and she has become the hero of the story. What's more, she's done it by stealing the honour from two men. So first, she steals the honour from Sisera by killing him with a tent peg. Now you say, well, what's that got to do with it? Well, it may seem strange to think through, but there was such a thing as the honourable death in battle. Right? You know, kind of going down swinging against a worthy foe. Okay, we had a good battle. You beat me on the day. Okay. Uh, that's not what happens here. Uh, one commentator I read... Uh, said that setting up tents in those days was considered women's work. And so just, if you will allow me just for a moment to use a 1950s stereotype, to be killed with a tent peg was a bit like the ancient equivalent of being killed with a frying pan, right? It's, it's just not really how the commander of an army imagines he's going to go down, killed in his sleep with a tent peg. And in a world where honour matters, even in death... To die like this was pure shame. Second, she steals the honour of Barak by killing Sisera. Now, we knew that that was going to happen because Deborah told us, but if there's honour in dying well, there's also honour in killing the leader of an army. You see that beautifully with uh, David and Goliath. Right? David fights Goliath, he's kind of the leader, or, you know, the representative, kills him, grabs his sword, chops his head off. He then walks around with both of them as trophies of war. Actually takes the head and carries it with him back into Jerusalem. It's like, here's my trophy that shows that I was man of the match. There's honour, there's glory. 
but not for Barak. Because he wavered in his obedience to God's word, he misses out on the honor. God takes it from him and gives it to the woman. And so just as he arrives, that's when Jael is killing Sisera. So really, there's a double twist to the story. There's a twist at the start, a twist at the end. It's a story of two women who stand up and stand out in the age of men. Deborah is remembered instead of Barak as the real judge, and Jael is remembered instead of Barak as the real hero. Why? Well, because unlike Barak, they answered the call of God to serve him. We're saying, by the way, don't forget that Jael was a Kenite. In other words, she's not just a woman, she's a foreign woman. That even puts her further down the pecking line in Israel's social hierarchy. And yet God takes the honor away from the frightened man and gives it to the courageous woman. He takes the faithless first and makes them last, takes the faithful last and makes them first. All of which, again, I think brings us back to this key message, the honor of responding to the call of the Lord. On the one hand, I do think this story is a massive rebuke to any of us who if we ponder and think about it for a moment, think maybe I have actually been whistling with the sheep at home, staying with the coves in the caves. Whereas it's also an incredible celebration, a rejoicing in how good it is when people partner together and answer the call of the Lord. Uh, Two final posters from World War II. I really like this one. It's nice in the surf... But what about the men in the trenches? Go and help. (laughs) Don't stand looking at this. Go and help. The big message of the passage. Don't just stand on the sidelines. Get up and do something. Answer the call of the Lord. And so I, I do think we're supposed to get to the end of the story and ask ourselves, am I like Deborah, who's eager and ready to do what the Lord requires? Or am I more like Barak, too timid and insecure to do what God has guaranteed me success in unless someone holds my hand? Are we more like the people of Zebulun who willingly risked their lives to answer God's call or Reuben who thought about it, prayed about it and just decided to stay home with the sheep? Again, chapter 5, verse 2. When the princes of Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. I'm going to close. As I close, I said this earlier, I want to try and help us figure out what, what exactly does it look like for us to answer the call of God in our lives today? Because I suspect most of us almost have this inbuilt intuition. We know deep down it's going to look different for us than it did for the Israelites. We kind of know God's not sending us to grab a tent bag and go and kill some Canaanites. So what are we supposed to do? Well, number two, uh, sorry, I'll offer two things. Number one, first, trust in the one that Barak points us to. Trust in the one that Barak points us forwards to. See, without taking away from the courage and the faith of the women in this story, it is difficult to get to the end of the story and not be a little disappointed by the men. Again, I'm not taking away from the honor of the women. They are awesome. But I do think the story leaves us crying out for a better man. A man who will actually truly stand up 
and answer the call of God to deliver his people. As you see, as you keep reading the books to come, none of the next few judges fit that bill either. And so next week, Jade's going to take us through Gideon. He's even more reluctant than Barak. Then I think we meet Jephthah. He's, he's just, he sacrifices his daughter. It's tragic. Then you get, what is it, Samson. He's super courageous, but he's a total loose cannon. And so none of the judges really fit the bill. So you get to the end of the book, still feeling dissatisfied. Same goes for the end of the Old Testament more generally. Like after judges, you get a time of kings and you're like, maybe kings will fix the problem. No. And so you actually finish the whole Old Testament crying out for a truer and better barrack. And then comes along Jesus. Unlike Barak, he answers the call of God to be the saviour that his people needed. That's a big call. Jesus isn't just sent up against Sisera and 900 chariots, but against Satan, sin and death, and ultimately the righteous judgment of God against the sin of people like you and I. And while clearly intimidated, if I can put it that way, in the garden he still prays, Lord, if there is any way... Take this cup from me, but um, not my will, but your will be done. And so he, as he walks into battle, no one holds his hand. He doesn't have an army of 10,000 at his back. Instead, he faces the cross alone. And on the cross, doesn't just risk his life, but gives his life to rescue people like you and I, those who would come to trust in him from the oppression of Satan, sin and death. And so at the cross, you see Jesus proved to be the judge, the leader, the hero, the saviour that we've been crying out for all along. So how did God respond? How did God respond? Well, given everything we've seen so far, it shouldn't surprise us. God responded by honouring him. He raised him from the dead, and more than that, he exalted him to the right hand of the Father giving him authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. But suppose you say, well, how, how is that relevant to me? What, what is the call of God? Well, listen. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he's preaching in Athens. And he says to the people, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance. But now, God calls all people everywhere to repent. That's the call. God calls all people everywhere to repent. He set a day on which he will judge the world with justice through the man that is appointed, Jesus Christ, and he's given proof of that to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the call. Repent of sin, trust in Jesus, the judge appointed by God. And so if you haven't done that yet, what are you waiting for? Your God has called you to stand up and answer the call. And the promise of the Scriptures is that anyone who throws themselves at the mercy of Christ and trusts in Him will never be put to shame. But what if you've already done that? What if you say, well, I have responded to that call. Let me offer you a second one. I think the second call is the Great Commission. And I want to suggest today that it requires a slightly different kind of faith to let's call, or a different kind of courage, if I can put it that way, to the courage of World War I. Because World War I, they didn't know who was going to win. We know who's going to win. 
Right? Part of the reason Barak's faith was so weak is that God promised Barak that he would win. Christ on the cross guarantees the victory. And then after he's been raised from the dead, the final thing he says to his disciples is, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. We win. So join the team. Step up. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the call of God today. Now, Grace City, we have a vision as a church. It's not identical to the Great Commission, but it's, let's say it's inspired by it. It's just different words, but it's the same thing. Thousands of disciples throughout Sydney and beyond radically committed to the cause of Christ. The vision of our church is attempting to inspire all of us to step up and answer the call of God in our day. So let me encourage you, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't stay home with the sheep. Get up and help. Now, yes, some of us will be leaders. And praise God for good leaders. Praise God when leaders lead. But as with Israel, there was only two in 10,000. And it was Deborah and Barak. I guarantee you it would have been a very different result if they didn't also have the 10,000 volunteers from the various different tribes. It would be the same for us. God honors those who answer the call. So don't bury your talents. Don't build with straw. Jesus says, any branch that does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown away. God has created us with good works to do that we should walk in them. And so, Grace City, ask yourself, how am I going at answering the call of God in our day? Now, to answer the call of God means so, so much more than this. But I'm going to give you a simple place to start. Again, don't, don't boil it down to this because it's so much more than this. But if you're wondering, what is a really simple place to start that I can begin doing today? I just want to say, start attending church regularly. Be a part of a small group, a community group here at church where you can invest in others and build them up as you dig into God's word. Serve a ministry team, step up, give generously, partner in the work, and then share the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ. Because when the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Why don't you join me? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much that ultimately... Our deliverance does not rest on our ability to be courageous, to step up and answer the call. Instead, you sent a true and better judge in the person of Jesus Christ, who answered the call, who fought our enemy, who was our hero and saviour and deliverer. I said, Lord, would you help us to join his team? He's guaranteed us success. And now you call us to fight bravely under his banner. Would you help us to be people who give ourselves to that work? In Jesus' name, amen.